friend and fellow podcaster Palais Beau, the radio vagabond, tells me that I don't reveal enough about myself on Lush Life. I'm slightly reticent to do that, as I want it to be all about my guests. Still, I will keep trying little by little. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, who lives in London, by the way. And this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. I wouldn't have met my next guest if I hadn't been invited to the Traverse Elite Content Creators Conference in Antigua. 40 of us from the UK, USA, Canada, Europe, and the Caribbean flew to the island of Antigua to teach and learn new skills while discovering the island. When I learned I was invited, I immediately called Peter Holland of TheFloatingRumShack.com to ask his advice on drinking rum in Antigua. He's one of my former guests who knows everything about rum everywhere. He put me in touch with Lisa Ferrara, one of the granddaughters of one of the eight founders of the Antigua Distillery, and the rest, well, I'll let her tell you, as she's our guest today. Also, after the cocktail of the week, Learn where to discover more info on Antigua and where to drink their version of the classic rum cocktail. If you want to make the cocktail of the week first and then listen to the episode, I wouldn't blame you, as it'll put you right in island mode. Now over to Lisa, who starts us off with a history of rum in Antigua. History of rum in Antigua, if you go back from like a macro perspective, of course, Antigua was making rum during like, um, for lack of a better word, during times of like, you know, enslavement and things like that. Um, Antigua was known as one of the places that did make very good rum. um, There are sightings of this um, in various literature, you know, just small little snippets of, you know, excellent rums from Antigua. You know, Antigua, Barbados and Jamaica would have been three of the, you know, islands that were producing known rums that were being knownly exported to the States as rum and not just sugar. Um, we did have stills in Antigua. Betty's Hope Plantation does have pot stills on it. You can still go and see where the chambers are, where they held them, things like that. Um, what uh, years are we talking? You're talking uh, 1800s, so 1700s, 1800s. Um, the current distillery itself, although has absolutely nothing to do with this. So as opposed to other islands where you have distilleries that have come out of the long history of rum production, so they can date back to plantations that were active and that were working. Antigua Distillery does not have this. Antigua Distillery is um, a marked difference in the history of that rum in Antigua. There was a time when that stopped. The production of these things stopped. Antigua, in in other words, the rum for export stopped. Antigua still continued to produce sugar, um, they produced Muscovado sugar. There was a factory here, a large factory that, if I'm not mistaken, was owned by Tate and Lyle. And all of the sugarcane produced in Antigua had to go. Why to did it? Do you factory. know why it stopped? The production of the export of rum? The export of rum itself? Mm-hmm. I am not sure. I know okay. that what happened is that the a lot of the plantations started to fall into disuse and it had to do with. Generally, again, if you look at the long history of the Caribbean, it has to do with larger islands being able to produce more sugar at a lower price Mm -hmm. and Antigua not continuing to be competitive. And so these plantations still stayed in existence though, up until like the 1930s, 1940s, they, they existed in Antigua. They were not producing very much. Obviously they were not at that point slave labor. They were 
waged labor. So Antigua did have its own part in the labor riots that happened throughout the Caribbean in the 1940s. So in so 1830s, 1840s, you have emancipation. So Antigua and Barbados are the only two islands that emancipated everybody on August 1st of 1834, 1832, 1834. And everybody was emancipated on midnight. And it was because both of these islands were wholly owned by plantations. So if you walked off of one plantation, you could walk onto another. And as opposed to like Jamaica, Trinidad, these other islands, they had a period of indentured servitude that went into 1838. Because if they freed everybody at midnight, then they would wake up with no labor force. So they did that and they had long periods of indentured servantry, things like that. Antigua did not have this. That being said, Guyana had indentured servantry. And during the years of indentured servantry in Guyana, you saw a large population of Portuguese immigrants, specifically from Madeira. They go to Guyana. And there continues to be this wave of Portuguese migration over, you know, the next, say, 100 years or so. And then, so early 1900s, these immigrants start to come up the islands. So my grandfather was one of these people. So he came here because of his uncle. He went through the islands, went to Guyana. He meets my grandmother there. And they get married and they move back to Antigua. This happened to a lot of families because, again, it was indentured servants who had moved to Guyana. When they got there, they became a part of not the... They became a shopkeeper class, kind of like in um, Trinidad and Jamaica. You see like the Chinese shopkeeper. Mm-hmm. They had this kind of thing that happened in Guyana as well. And it was the Portuguese shopkeeper. So the English um, people who lived there would be the people who owned the large wholesalers. And then they would sell to these um, Portuguese shopkeepers, if you want to call them that. And so they had a, their kind of own class there. And from there, they expanded into the Caribbean. My grandfather was one of those people who came from Madeira knew would have known of other Portuguese people around the Caribbean and made his home in Antigua. There were eight of them. So he came here. There were people from the Anjo family there. There was um, Manuel Diaz. There was Anjo. There was Joachim. There was Ferreira. So there were eight of them who Mm -hmm. formed then. They had different shops. Some of them were doing like general provisioning. Um, They were doing stores. And they come together in the 1930s. Uh, 1932 specifically and they decide to form a distillery and that is how the Antigua distillery is born so it's born 100 years after the end of slavery in the Caribbean mm-hmm. so it had nothing really to do it doesn't it doesn't have a tie back is what I'm trying to say so all of these guys come together now here and they put together their money and they buy a Saval still so why we sit there and go is it 32? Is it 33? Because, yeah, they bought the still, but it took a year to get everything together. So there's eight founders, eight original founders of the Antigua Distillery. And why they were shopkeepers. Think, why do you think that they wanted to revive the rum distilling here? I We go back and forth about this because uh-huh. it's a question that I've asked. And I've asked my uncle and I ask Anthony, who's my boss. And sometimes it's like pulling teeth from people because... You see all these things written down, but what you're, when you're reading back into the records, you're reading their daily life. So you're reading, the truck tire is down, so so-and-so had to fix it. And, these, and so to pull information out of it is difficult. Um, I was having a long conversation with my uncle, who is the, he's the chairman of the board of the distillery now. And it was one day just in passing, he went, well, yeah, of course, because my father was a cooper. And I went, well, now you say this, right. that they, he worked at a distillery because all, cause he was a cooper, which meant he made barrels. Right. And that meant that he would have worked then at the distillery part of a fortified wine company. Because to do fortified wines, you have to be distilling. 
You see what I mean? I because you have to distill a brandy to then fortify the wine with in Madeira. They were from Madeira specifically. That's the other thing. They're not from mainland Portugal. All these okay. people were from Madeira. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a history of my grandfather came because of his uncle and then he brought his nephews. Was who, there ever a chance that they were going to make Madeira? I guess they couldn't because of, you know. Deep down, you know. I think that they're make, they originally were making something that is kind of like a poncho, but I can't prove okay. it. All right. But I know that when I speak to older people, and people who remember walking down Long Street because Long Street is this you went there the street that has the church on it and the museum right um, our original store is there which is Quinn Farah's store Manuel Diaz's original store was there and there was another store that was owned by my grandfather's brother who was also Ferrara and so that street I call it like rum lane, but this is me doing this, right? But there were a series of rum shops on that street that were all blending and making their own rum and they all had their own labels and they all had their vats and when you speak to like my aunts who would have been young when these when these guys were doing it, they remember walking down that street on a Sunday and you would smell oranges and you would smell bitters and you would smell things like this. And I'm sitting there going, it almost sounds like a poncha. But they say, no, it was not poncha. It was definitely rum, but it had these additives in it. And some, so I guess even, the flavors they missed from Madeira. In, yeah, in- and also it would have been, so then... If you look at, for example, like in speaking to Bailey, the guy who runs um, The Real McCoy, where they're making the rum with um, Richard and Barbados, and they talk about how the Barbados people were not, they called it adulterating the rum. Um, Here, it it must have come from a tradition from Madeira to do this, Mm -hmm. because they all did it, you see. And so the rums that Antigua Distillery makes now are very far from those, but they did make rums. So definitely there was some, there was juice in there and there was Mm -hmm. bitters in there. And there was, for some period of time, there was a prune something in there as well. And it was historically done like that. The distillery today does not make rums like that. But they do, like I said, my aunt remembers as a child the smell of the whole street, the smelling of oranges and things like that Mm -hmm. when they were blending in there. And so they all blend and they made made their own labels. So then later, so the, the distillery originally was there to produce bulk rum, and then they were given allotments. So... Manuel Diaz would have gotten X amount of casks. Quinfar would have gotten X amount of casks. And you know, somebody else would have gotten this amount of casks. And then they would have taken those to their shops and they would have blended them there and bottled them there and sold them as their own okay. labels. Mm-hmm. Then later in the 50s, they, well, 40s, 50s, they had gotten enough money that they thought, okay, this plantations now are really going under. They're not, they're not being productive anymore. They can't do this. Of course, you Long before that, you're going to see the rise of beet sugar in, in Europe and all these other things. So there's a number of factors at play. The labor movement in the Caribbean, Antiguan people refusing to work cane anymore. Like I said, burning down cane fields because politically it was this question of it's been 100 years and we have the same job. And so it was this wanting politically in Antigua for people to get better jobs, to be doing different things. They didn't want to be working in the agricultural sector anymore. So it was causing problems all over on these plantations. The distillery, again, pulls together everything that they had at the time, and they buy um, what is called the syndicate. So it's a syndicate of plantations yeah. in and around um, Half Moon Bay area. So if you go up to, I don't know if you saw, did you go by where there's a rehab center, or Clapton has a rehab center up there? It's a famous beach called Half Moon Bay. But basically when you get up there, um, is this town called Freetown, and from there until you hit the beach, everything on your left-hand side was what they bought. So it was kind of 10 years after they started this. I'm presuming it was somewhat successful because they could afford to have bought this. And of course, at that point in time, they're thinking, great, we're going to control our production. We're going to be able to, you know, make our own sugar and all this stuff. And it wasn't that simple. 
because all of the sugar on the island was still under contract to Tate and Lyle. So then they had to still give it to them. Um, they did, though, make some of their own. They made um, rum from the Muscovado, which is, it's, it's sugar, but it's almost like a thick, thick, syrupy, sugary thing. You know mm. what I mean? It doesn't look exactly like when you think sugar in your head. You know what I mean? Okay. But so they did It's not like muscle. you buy a bag of Demerara sugar and it looks like that, you know? No. Right. From my understanding of it, it seems to be a little bit more like a, a syrupy type of thing. You know what I mean? So like how molasses is a syrup and not as, not like, not as dark as molasses. Mm. It's a, so they made rum from Muscovado. So there's still some, like one, maybe half bottle somewhere in Anthony's office of the original Muscovado rum. Um, point of that being is that's the first time you see them make a label though and the label was called Caballero so now we have a rum called Caballero which you'll see all over the place but the original one was called Caballero so they would have sent these labels out and then everyone would have done their own bottling of it and just put their stamp on it so they were doing like I said they were doing bulk out to everyone and everyone had an allotment and then they would blend their own rums and they would also release Caballero rum then that then moved into, they made Cavalier. And then that was their first branded one. Any, do you know why they changed it to a more, you know, from a Portuguese sounding name to a more English? To be honest, I'm not sure because I know that I've seen letters from my grandfather sending bottles back to Funchal in 1950-something. So it would have been very early that they moved from Cavalero to Cavalier. Why? I'd have to ask Anthony as to why they made that decision. But yeah, there was definitely a decision to move from one to the other. Yeah. But from even the 19, from 1952, it was already Cavalier. And when they made the Muscovado label, the first one that looks like with a person on it, it's already called Cavalier at that point. Mm-hmm. So it was probably just to anglicize it. If, if I had to guess, it would be to kind of anglicize it. Mm-hmm. But. And now I think the other one's more romantic, but it can't be trademarked because I checked. Well, well, Calvert and I checked, yeah, but no, can't work. Mm -hmm. So they're making Cavalier. Mm -hmm. It's doing well. Um, Why would they, when did they start thinking about English Harbor or, Mm -hmm. you know, how how did it grow from there? Well, what happened... It's so funny because everybody always wants like this beautiful story. And it's no, not, we do it's, not like beautiful stories. So what it's it a, is it can be really as messy as possible. What it is is that there it was Cavalier, and then they Cavalier until you became independent in 1981. So there was a num uh, there was a large allotment of rum that was put down in 81. It was released as a three year old as the Independence three year old. It was released at five years old under what used to be a blue label. Cavalier used to make a five-year-old. So it was Cavalier and Cavalier five-year-old. Oh, so so when did they bring in the Cavalier five? Was that right away? I mean. I think it was in the 80s sometime. I can't prove that. So you had Cavalier for a long time. And then, okay, let's in the 80s do Cavalier five. So they make a Cavalier five-year-old. And whether the first release of the Cavalier five-year-old was the release of the 81 vintage five-year-old, that I'm not sure about. I'd have to check with Anthony. But they make this Cavalier five-year-old. And then Cavalier five-year-old becomes a big seller. Like, people really like it. It's a premiumization of the Cavalier. And it is five years old. And it goes on for years as Cavalier five-year-old. I remember being in university in Canada and I could go to the LCBO and buy a Cavalier five-year-old. My brother still has bottles of it, you know? And then... It gets to the 16th year after independence and they make 
Cavalier 1981 vintage release. And I feel like we have this conversation all the time locally in Antigua and everybody goes, what year was it released? Because it just says 81 vintage. It doesn't tell you the year it was released. The only reason I am like adamant is because I remember being 16 when this thing was released. So I'm like, it was released as a 16-year-old. I'm pretty sure it was released as a 16-year-old. But we have the arguments all the time. Was it 15? Was it 16? We don't know. It was somewhere, but it's around that age that they released for the first time what was the recognizes the 81 vintage. In other words, when they did it as a Cavalier 5, it was just Cavalier 5-year-old with a crest on it, and it, mm-hmm. you knew that it was the 81 vintage of the 5-year-old, but it wasn't a big talk-up of it. But when they did the 16-year-old one, it was. It was very much, this is the 81 vintage release of this. Mm-hmm. And people loved it. Mm-hmm. And then they wanted to export that. But then they could not because Cavalier cannot be trademarked in the UK because it's too common a term. It cannot be trademarked in the US because <laughs> somebody else already had the name and this is bouncing back and forth and they're going, well, what to do? And so sometime around the 90s, they had played around with this idea of making a new brand called English Harbor. So they kind of dusted it off a little bit and went, we'll make English Harbor five-year-olds. And so over time, how deliberate it was or how it just kind of organically happened, I can't really guarantee one way or the other because we started then making Cavalier XO. So pulled back the 81 vintage rum, but rums that were around that age continued mm-hmm. to go into what was then called Cavalier XO. So you see a series of labels around this time. That's the first use of the Martinique bottle that you see the English harbors in now. Mm-hmm. That's the first time we used that bottle was when they made the 81 vintage and it had a wax seal on the top and it was Cavalier 81 vintage. Then there was Cavalier XO. Then there was English Harbor XO. And then all of a sudden there's English Harbor five-year-old. So they all kind of blended in around the same time. But English Harbor five-year-old was re- started to be made in the, in the 90s was when they started to make that. And so You'll still see today in the UK, there's older bottles of an English Harbor three-year-old that were in what we call the vermouth bottle, which Mm -hmm. is the regular Cavalier bottle and things like that. So English Harbor as a brand was there from 1991, but the five-year-old is after 16 years of of the release of the 81 vintage. Mm -hmm. So English Harbor as a brand existed from 1991, but it wasn't always as a five-year-old product. Now, English Harbor, we do only five-year-old. So Cavalier at the moment is the younger rums. English Harbor is the older rums. But effectively, the base rum is very, 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 very similar. Mm-hmm. I would argue that a lot of the times it's the same. Now, do your aunts ever miss having the rum that your grandfather sold? You know, in you know, do they remember the old? Oh yeah, in his shop he had this, and we missed. Or they talk you know. about it, but it's. We would love to have this whole romantic thing of, it was great, you know? And I talked to my aunt and she was like, it was a rum shop. I had to lock it down. They wouldn't go home. (laughs) Or the five of them all had different rums. Yeah. So was was there a fight to get, okay, we want the Cavalier to taste like my rum. You know, I don't think so. No? No. I just said, okay, we just wanted to taste the best rum that we can. Well, because it was its own blend. You see, it wasn't any of theirs. But Uh in theory, I mean how similar all of their rums were. We can't go back now and do a tasting. I, know it's too I bad. would love to do that. I would love to get I all of the I just want you to say there was, there's one barrel left of mm-hmm. grandfather's <laughs> no. rum that we take a teeny bit every, no. every you know, Christmas. No, no, no. <laughs> I wish. 
That's what Anthony does with the Muscovado, though. <laughs> but yes, Anthony uh-huh. does have the Muscovado like that, yes. But in terms of having the original recipes from these guys, I... I'm trying to convince my aunt always that it has to be somewhere in that house. And occasionally I go digging. When I go digging is when I find things like those labels and things. I came across those one day, just out of nowhere. They were just sitting on a shelf for the longest time. But yeah, they used to do other things too. I mean, they make bay rum down there. They used to make falernums. They used to make different things. So I mean, well, once speaking you have of that, you do you make can... other, um, other things as well. You make yeah. ready-made things. And yeah. how did that, those come about? Um, I think they came about mostly, well, you have these two kind of things from a marketing side, you have a still running. You want to be able to make things that, so if you're constantly making things and aging rum, it's like the guys from Bacardi came down here years ago. Like we used to rep Bacardi. You're also, also like my uncle was friends with them and they came, you know, looking at the distillery and they're laughing at them. You know, they were like, why would you lay down something for five years that you could sell like in two days, you know? And it's, because it's a constant thing of like the Bacardi versus the other rums. But that, that conversation actually did happen in Adigo, but it's happened all over the world, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not that we're special about that, but yes, we were one of the people who were putting down rums, aging rums for a long time historically here. And so the other products, I think, just come up because you have a still running and you can make them and you have, you know, a want for them. And so they were produced for that reason. So like you have the Cavalier Rum Punch, which is great, and it's always a hit and it's welcoming and it's nice. And you have Coco Caribe because people love coconut rum. And to me, personally, I prefer it to international products. I like that it's made here. It gives it a lower carbon footprint, but also the profile is... It's slightly sweeter than other um, coconut rums that you see in different places. So, yeah, so we have, like I said, the Coca Creve and you have the Cavalier Rum Punch. And then, of course, you have the standard Cavalier, which is your three-year-old and then the five-year-old. And when was it? It was a couple of years ago. Actually, it was the first project that I got to kind of help with. It was very exciting. It was nice to feel like you were part of something was um, the cask finishes when when Anthony decided that we were really going to do this. It was something that he always wanted to do. And it's because of the Madeira. The Madeira was really the heart of the project because they were all from Madeira. Mm-hmm. So Anthony's grandmother and my grandfather were brother and sister. And so, but she never left Portugal. So he, his father was one of my grandfather's nephews. So he was one of the two nephews that came over. So Anthony's cousin, Jerry. So it's Alvaro and Fabian were their names, their dads. And they were my grandfather's nephews and they came here. And I think their side of the family they know their family in Portugal still, so they go there and they see them and they have cousins on that side and things like that and Anthony really wanted to be able to put our rum in Madeira barrels and I think it was it was kind of like this bringing back home of the whole project Mm -hmm. so we did a sherry and we did a port but the Madeira was really the heart of the project you know that was the idea and so the first batch the Madeira was really to me, it came out as the best one. I remember when, when Anthony first got the sample, he came here on a Friday night because we do cocktails here on Friday. And he just threw it in front of me and I just hugged him. I thought it was the most amazing thing. I'd, and he's like, you're a big nerd. And I was like, <laughs> it tastes kind of like almonds, but I don't care. We love it. And it was great. And to this day, it has that marzipani, almondy kind of a thing that goes through it. But I love it. And it's beautiful. And I think when you do a project that comes from your heart, that's what happens. Like, it's going to be good. And know? how can someone have a taste of this? I mean, do you- we could open it right now. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't mean that. Not yet. I meant if, is it, do you blend that in with your English Harbor or? It's part know? of this cask series. Oh, so, so it, you, it's special cask series. Correct. That so you also have. Yes. So what is the base rum? Is it a five-year-old, mm-hmm. 10-year-old? It's a five-year-old rum. Correct. So actually that's <laughs> the first batch because it was an experiment. Um, first batch is the, the base is all five-year-old. 
Um, they do not have age statements on them, however, because they are actually five pluses. So it's not because it's a five minus, it's a five plus. So they all have to be five-year-old first, and then the barrels get selected, and then they'll either go into an ex-sherry cask or an ex-port cask or an ex-Madeira cask. Um, if it is of any interest, the Madeira casks are from Blandies and the ports are from Royal Oporto. The sherry were bought on open market, so that's just this kind of standard sherry barrel. Um, they were actually bought through a friend of my uncle's. <laughs> that's how you get cask grown <laughs> from the Antigua distillery. You just call a friend. That's kind of how that went. But it was very cool because um, the day that Anthony went, he got to meet um, a member of the Symington family who were there, and he explained to them the project, and they absolutely loved it, and that's why they agreed to sell the barrel. Because Madeira does not normally sell their barrels. Mm-hmm. They like to keep them. So they really loved the project. And I ran into them then at Provine a couple of years later. The person I ran into knew about the project, and we ended up having this conversation in Dusseldorf. Oh, the rum's going! And it was, it was very cute, and it was like this, it started this little kind of transatlantic conversation, which is cute. Um, that being said, the rums, yes, they have to be five. Then they put them into those barrels. Uh, the first time, they all went in for about average six months. So six months they went and they came out pretty dark. And our rum is very light. So when you're doing cask finish, if it's one thing that we've learned, is you have to take into account the rum that you're putting into this. You should always, you have to take into rum what you're putting into what at all times. Right. English Harbor is going to be on the lighter style of rum. We are a traditional column, but we're still a column. So, and we still do short fermentation. So we're not coming into this with a big bulky rum to put into a cask. We're coming in with, as you've tasted, um, a light butterscotch pineapple rum that we're putting into cask. So we have to be careful of what influence the cask is going to have. So even after five years old, our rum still maintains that kind of a butterscotch, pineapple, Mm -hmm. coconut, light vanilla so it can be heavily influenced if you throw it into a sherry cask. So we learned that very quickly. Um, so after six months, they were pretty dark. And it was sherry. It was beautiful. But it was this dark, dark, uh-huh. dark rum. And it was really... And we took a decision at that point. Is it good? Yes. Is it cask finish? Yes. Does it scream rum? Not really anymore. Mm. So what we did then is we blended 10-year-olds in it. So the first batch of all of the cask finishes are actually a five-year-old in a cask for six months with a percentage of a 10-year-old mm-hmm. in its blend. So again, reasons why it doesn't have an age statement mm-hmm. on it. We could do a weighted average, but we didn't bother. If you're tasting the rum, you can tell that you're not tasting a young rum. And they have nice characters and they're very, I like them a lot. And they're, they're showstoppers, you know, like people love them. When we, sh- when we show them to people, nobody ever goes, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> like, it doesn't happen. Maybe they don't do it to our face. <laughs> so that being said, that's so I call them five pluses and they are very much on a premium end. The idea though is that Anthony wanted to make a rum that you would take to your friend's birthday party and you would drink it. Mm-hmm. Not that you would put it in a room somewhere and it would never be seen again. So the idea is to keep the price point around the price of our 10 year old. So you want like five and then the cask and then the 10 and then limited releases as hopefully they will, you know, in future come out. But the idea is definitely to stay underneath our 10 and around our 10 in pricing. So let's say, say you're in the UK, say that the average on the five-year-old price is going to be around 25 quid. You're going to want to see our cask finish 35, 45 in that range and you're going to want to see our 10 year old 45, 50, 60 max maxing out their type of thing. 
So for the five-year-old and the 10-year-old English Harbor, do you see those as mixing or sipping? You know, you do can you do want both. people to make cocktails out of those? Yeah, for sure. And go ahead and do it with both. And even the, the cask finishes are a bit more funny. That being said, mm-hmm. we did one the other day. It was... It was an evening that we had in London after a UK rum fest with Roger Barnes with Spirits Elite. We did a rum pairing dinner at Boysdale. And they did a rum Manhattan with the Madeira cask with Carpano Antico. And huge difference, shout out to Carpano Antico, between a regular Rosso Vermouth and this. It was massively different. I mean, they're both good, but the the one, if you do a rum Manhattan with this, with the Carpano Antico as the Rosso Vermouth in it, you're astonished. Like, it's beautiful. It's very, very good. So I say with the cask finishes, definitely know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing and you're willing to go there and you're somebody who likes to experiment with things like that, for sure. Like to me, the port cask loves like a ginger blend on it. Something, you know what I mean? If you were doing like a candy ginger, if you were doing some kind of an infusion, that's really cool. So for higher end cocktails, I definitely think the cask finishes, but they definitely have to be tasted and experimented with first. So don't just go throwing those into cocktails. Um, 10-year-old, that being said, does an amazing old-fashioned. And, and the 10-year-old is where I say we can kind of do tiki-type stuff. It can take the bigger flavors. Mm-hmm. The, the English Harbor 10 yeah. can take the bigger flavors. The English Harbor 5, is, um, it still maintains that kind of a fruit structure, that coconut vanilla, and it's light. And I like that for sipping, to be honest. I am a person who, when I drink spirits, I drink them neat or with ice. And I find I actually prefer the five-year-old. I'm not a huge person who thinks that age statement defines an alcohol. Mm. I think you have to have a minimum of you check this, you aged it, and it's now tasting good. But, and I think that, but I don't like when people get caught up with age statement. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Our five and our 10, to me, are equally good rums of different flavor profiles. It's not that the 10 is 100 times better than the 5. And I often find that when I put them in tastings, people either really like the 5 or really like the 10. And then they have these arguments about it. And I'm like, could we stop? Like, everybody's special, you know? <laughs> but, but it does happen. So in other words, to say that both of them can be sipping rums, all of them can be sipping rums, and all of them can be cocktail rums. Should we go now? Have some sipping and, and cocktail rums? <laughs> of course. All right. <laughs> A monumental thank you to Lisa, who transported me to the distillery and around the island, picking me up from the hotel and then bringing me back again. We only missed trying Antiguan KFC, thought to be the best in the world, by about five minutes. Next time. Now, though, we do have time for that cocktail of the week. Our cocktail of the week is the eternal beachy classic, the Pina Colada, done the Antigua distillery way and called the English Harbor Colada. Build this cocktail in an old-fashioned glass over ice. Add two ounces of English Harbor five-year-old rum. Then top with two ounces of fresh squeezed Antigua black pineapple juice. Or if you don't have that, any pineapple juice will do. And then add... 2 ounces of fresh coconut water. Then, garnish it with a pineapple wedge and a lime wheel. 
You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. If you're eager to learn more about what to drink and where to drink it in Antigua, head to alushlifemanual.com to read my lush guide to drinking in Antigua. Trust me, it's worth it just to discover how to find Marcia's peanut punch. Next time, we bring you a legend in his own right, as well as the man who helms one of the most famous bars in one of the most famous hotels in the world. That is Ago Perone, straight from the Connaught Bar. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast. For more information and links to everything you've heard, plus a whole lot more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. The music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your drinking partner, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar. Thank you.